For quite a long time, I wanted to go to a paradise island. I'd been seeing the travel brochures when you see the photographs of the turquoise waters and the white sandy beaches and the palm trees, and I've always wondered what it would be like to actually be in a place like look, that looked like in the travel brochures. And just coincidentally, I had a chance to go this year to an island uh, off of Thailand. Some of you might be familiar with the island called Koh Samui. This is in the Samui Islands, and there's three islands there, Koh Samui, Koh Phangan, and Koh Tao. Koh Tao is the, the most remote island that's still somewhat undeveloped. And I had the chance to go there with a friend. Um, the only pro problem, and you'll understand why I'm saying it was a problem, because is that we went there in April. And <laughs> if anybody knows about Asia, most places in Asia, in April or that time of the year, it's terribly hot. And I did know that it was going to be hot, but I thought if we were on the island, everything's perfect on the island. <laughs> and there would be warm tropical breezes and <laughs> cool waters and we would be able to escape from the heat. So we went to Koh Tao, the furthest island away with me and a friend of mine. And it had it, it was just fabulous fabulous fabulously gorgeous. It had the turquoise waters and the rocky cliffs and we had a little bungalow up on top of one of the cliffs and we could stay as long as we wanted to. The problem was it was really hot. <laughs> it didn't it it didn't cool down at all. I think it was probably about hundred and ten degrees. Even in the night it wasn't really possible to sleep. And I was miserable. I I was not happy on my paradise island. <laughs> I was thinking, as minds do, that there there is no reason not to be happy in this beautiful and lovely place. But the reality was quite different, that it was really hot and probably not a place to be taking a vacation at that time of the year if one wanted to have, have a pleasurable time. Even the water was very warm, but it was cooler than the air, <laughs> so we were able to get some relief. It seemed that my mind just went into a depression, just the, the heat just pulled everything down. And all of my tricks and all of my techniques and my methods, nothing worked <laughs> to bring the mind, to uplift the mind. After about two weeks, I think, maybe ten days, we had word that there was a daytime mosquito. Sometimes you have to be careful of the nighttime mosquitoes, the mosquitoes that carry the malaria, which, which the female mosquitoes bite between dawn and dusk. But there was another mosquito on this island that carried something called dengue fever. And it seems that I got that. 
And for about eight days or nine days, I was very ill with high fevers, weak joints. And one of the symptoms of this, uh, this illness is an itching, an internal itching. And for about three days and nights, I felt like I was going to jump out of my skin, just as itching, this terrible itching, in addition to the illness and the heat. So <laughs> here I was on my paradise island. <laughs> and we did realize that we had to get out. And as soon as I got well and strong enough, we left for more temperate climes. The reason I'm talking about this is because it's so, to me, it's a real metaphor for how things should appear to be and how they actually are. If, then, if anyone looked at my photographs of that time, <laughs> it would appear as if there was this beautiful, <coughs> tropical adventure going on on this island, but the truth was quite different. And I thought that it was quite interesting, too, in my own mind, how that thought played, I should be happy. I should be happy. I'm where I want to be. I should be happy. And it's like there's this insidious thought that I should be happy or things should be different. And it seems to play and play somehow. There's some way that deep into the psyche there's a way of feeling dissatisfied some of the time. I remember also when I first went to India about five, six years ago, it was really quite a shock for me, the things that I saw there. I had been living in California for ten years in San Francisco. I had never went to a third world country. And sometimes when I would walk down the streets and I would see the sick people the old people, the sick children, the poverty, and the filth. I remember, too, this thought going, I shouldn't be upset by this. <laughs> I should be able to feel more balanced. I should be in more control of my emotions. You know, somehow, again, not wanting to be affected by the truth of things, by the reality of what's occurring. And I find this pattern, not only when I see it in my own mind, but when other people talk about it, I find it such a fascinating pattern to investigate, to explore. So what happens that it's so difficult to tell the truth about ourselves? Just to admit that truth of what's really going on either within ourselves, admitting it to ourselves, or admitting it to another person. It seems like if we could just start there, admitting this truth to ourselves, but for some reason we want to cover it up, to appear differently than we appear. But what is being protected? What are we attempting to protect by not revealing this truth, by not being able to express ourselves just as we are, in that purity and that simplicity? It seems that what we're 
trying to protect is our self-image. This idea about who we think we are and how you and I want to present ourselves to the world. We have these ideas and pictures about who we are and how we want to present ourselves to the world. And this becomes the self-image, the self-identity. You might think, I, I am a person, any number of things, I'm a person who listens well, or I'm a person who stays composed in the face of difficulty. You know, however one is imagining themselves to be. Or I'm a person who flies off in rage, I can't keep myself composed at all. Sometimes we have positive self-images and sometimes we have negative self-images. And yet it's all <coughs> just self-image. And we really want to protect these somehow, to hide behind these self-images. And what we hide is our truth, is the truth of our unique self, of our unique being. We hide because we fear this truth. First, we fear what other people are going to think. What will people think if they knew the truth about me? What would they think that I'd be unlovable or I'd be left alone? I wouldn't have any friends. Nobody would want to be around me if people knew the truth. So, tend to hide this truth as if we're walking around with a secret. We don't want anybody to know. A few years back I found this, what I think is a fairly incredible piece of prose, and I'd like to read it to you. It's called, I know some of you have heard this before, Please Hear What I'm Not Saying. Don't be fooled by me. Don't be fooled by the face I wear. For I wear a mask. I wear a thousand masks. Masks that I'm afraid to take off. And none of them are me. Pretending is an art that's second nature with me. But don't be fooled. For God's sake, don't be fooled. I give you the impression that I'm secure. That all is sunny and unruffled with me. Within as well as without. That confidence is my name and coolness my game. That's the water's calm, and I'm in command, and that I need no one. But don't believe me, please. My surface may be smooth, but my surface is my mask, my ever-varying and ever-concealing mask. Beneath lies no smugness, no complacence. Beneath dwells the real me in confusion, in fear, in aloneness. But I hide this. I don't want anybody to know it. I panic at the thought of my weaknesses and fear exposing them. That's why I frantically create my masks, my masks to hide behind. They're nonchalant, sophisticated facades to help me pretend, to shield me from the glance that knows. But such a glance could be my salvation, and I know it. That is, if it's followed by acceptance, if it's followed by love. That glance can liberate me from myself, 
from my own self-built prison walls, from the barriers that I so painstakingly erect. That glance assures me of what I can't assure myself, that I'm really worth something. But I don't tell you this. I don't dare. I'm afraid to. I'm afraid you'll think less of me, that you'll laugh, and your laugh would kill me. I'm afraid that deep down I'm nothing, that I'm just no good, and you will see this and reject me. So I play my game, my desperate, pretending game, with a facade of assurance without and a trembling child within. So begins the parade of masks, the glittering but empty parade of masks, and my life becomes a front. I idly chatter to you in suave tones of surface talk. I tell you everything that's nothing, and nothing of what's everything, of what's crying within me. So when I'm going through my routine, do not be fooled by what I'm saying. Please listen carefully and try to hear what I'm not saying. Hear what I'd like to say, but what I cannot say. I dislike hiding, honestly. I dislike the superficial game I'm playing, the superficial phony game. I'd really like to be generous and spontaneous in me, but I need your help, your hand to hold, even though my mask would tell you otherwise. It will not be easy for you. Long-felt inadequacies make my defenses strong. The nearer you approach me, the blinder I may strike, strike back. Despite what books say of humans, I am irrational. I fight against the very thing I cry out for. You wonder who I am? You shouldn't. For I am every man and every woman who wears a mask. Don't be fooled by me, at least not by the face I wear. So sometimes we hide the truth from others, but worse is when we hide the truth from ourselves, when we're really afraid to look deeply at what we see and what is true. It seems that sometimes we want to keep what's true at an arm's distance, just stay over there. I don't want to really see what's going on. I don't want to be bothered. No, I don't want to be bothered by it all. Or I can't handle it. If, if, I, if I start looking at it, it's going to overpower me. It's going to be overwhelming. And I'd rather stay in control. It seems like there's a fear of oneself. It's a funny concept, being afraid of myself. <coughs> But it seems what happens. So we want to carry an idea of being in control, which then sets up the fear of being out of control and then feeling threatened by that possibility, that potential. So by looking directly, as we're doing here, looking directly at ourselves, What's really happening is that this self, this ego, 
the self-image is threatened. We're threatening the very existence of that self by looking at it and saying, I see you. I see you for what you are. And this ego perceives that it's going to lose. It's going to lose something. Perhaps it's going to lose its very existence. Perhaps it feels it's being threatened with death. And so it's going to fight as much as it can to keep hold, to keep control, to stay alive. Andrew Harvey, who wrote the book Hidden Journey, has a short little (coughs) incident in his book about this woman who meets this Tibetan tuku. A German woman, one of his students, had said, Is enlightenment painful? And Thuxi Rinpoche said, Enlightenment is not painful. How could it be? And she said, Is the process towards enlightenment painful? And he said, Yes. And she said, Is this pain necessary? And he said, Yes. One life has to end for another to begin. The ego has to die for awareness to be born. And the ego does not die fast. So we have this sense that we're being wise trying to be in control, holding on, masking the truth of things. There's some sense of wisdom behind it until we really look more closely and we see what's really going on. This resistance to the truth, this unwillingness to look at the truth, is something that we can actually feel tangibly. We can feel that kind of not wanting or that not liking in our bodies, that kind of contraction, that holding. When I was in Kotal, it was very hard for me to accept that in such a beautiful place I could be so miserable. It was very hard to accept the truth of what was occurring there. Yet the truth was that these conditions supported this misery. The conditions were set up externally to support this. And it would have been very difficult to uplift oneself out of that. So the truth was that I was miserable. And just sinking and sinking into this truth was what needed to be done. Not wanting to look at the truth of things is sometimes called denial. In psychotherapy terms, it's called denial. But I don't really like this word, denial. I think it can sometimes sound judgmental or sound as if there is a conscious intention behind suppressing the truth. And I don't think it works that way. I think that we really are all doing the best we can. That we're doing the best we can 
any of us, any being in this world is doing the best they can given the conditions of who they are. And yet each one of us seems to have a place of holding, some place that we're still holding, if we tell the truth. And it seems that this self-examination that we're doing here, this inquiry that we're doing here, is what needs to be done until the last hold is gone, until there's nothing left. So it seems that what we're afraid to look at is what this self-image. What makes up the self-image. It seems that it's really made up of imposed ideals and expectations from the past, from people who have been important in our lives. Often mother and father get a lot of the blame for that, but it's not just the mother and father. It's also a lot of cultural impositions certainly in America, a lot of media, a lot of media uh, images blasted at people of how they should be and how they should look and how they, they should feel. So there's lots of cultural pressures. There's also religious pressures, religious expectations and ideals, many ideals of perfection, confused language of perfection that gets imposed on us. And this conditioning from our past forms our habits. They form who we become, who we are right now. We could say the self-image is the same as one big ego habit. It's just habit, all this collection of habits over time. And when we sit and look, we see all these habits. We see the habit of mind and the habit of the body and the habit of reactivity. This is just this conditioning, this collection of, of impressions that have happened over time. We all have this. Everyone who's in a human body has this conditioning from their past. The problem is not so much of this package of habits, it's in thinking that's who we really are. It's believing in this package as the true self, the truth, the essential truth of who I am, thinking that's who I am. And in all the spiritual teachings, in all the traditions, what's pointed to is that that is not you. That's not your essential self. That's not your essential truth. And this is what needs to be seen. When we believe in these habits and conditionings as who we really are, we miss the real essence of our being. We take that to be the truth rather than what's really there. Rather than something much more profound, much more essential. And this belief in self overpowers 
this radiance, this joy, this naturalness that is there all the time, that's present with us all the time, but gets clouded over like dark clouds in the sky. But when there's dark clouds in the sky, the sun's still there. Nothing destroys the sun. The sun is radiating brilliantly, but there's just some clouds passing over. And the same is true when we take this package of habits and patterns and conditionings to be ourselves. It's like thinking the dark cloud is permanent and that the sun has been destroyed. So we say, don't be afraid to look. Don't be afraid to look. (laughs) Because what you find will bring great relief. It will bring great joy when you can look deeply into these things. It's a short poem from Antonio Machado. I dreamt last night, O marvelous error, that there were honeybees in my heart making honey out of my old failures. Nothing to do. The honeybees are taking care of it all. (coughs) Thuxi Rinpoche went on to say in this dialogue, he said, "The The misery you will have to endure in realizing enlightenment is nothing to the misery you will endure in life after life if you do not realize it. (laughs) to get an arrow out of the flesh you have to probe the wound that hurts but be grateful that you have understood enough to choose this misery not just grateful be happy it's important to be happy solemnly he looked at each of us and said however many times you fall stand up However many times you come close to despair, go on trusting. However many times your heart wants to close, keep it open. This fear of seeing ourselves, the fear itself, the fear that arises, must be seen into. So it doesn't have the power to obscure the truth. We have to see and examine and investigate the fear itself. Because we can see that there is no reason to be afraid of the fear. The problem really isn't the fear. As long as we keep moving, as long as we keep moving forward. It's said that let the fear be there and do it anyway. Like the fear doesn't have to go away. Let the energy of the fear be there and do it anyway. The problem with fear is only when we get stuck in it. Only when it has the potential to, to freeze us, to freeze the action, to freeze the movement. If that happens in those moments, there isn't anything we can do. 
But in the moments that there is that seeing the energy of the fear itself, we can say, no, I'm not going to be blocked by this fear. I'm not going to let this fear stop me. And we can keep moving forward, keep moving through it. It's not to struggle with the fear or to fight the fear or see the fear as an enemy, but more to make friends with the fear. I've seen in my own experience over the years that the fear, this energy of fear, actually just acts as my companion. It's there a lot of the time, but it no longer has any power to stop me, to block me, to move to when I want to move forward towards something that's important to me. But the energy of the fear hasn't gone away. I've just made friends with it. It's there, so <laughs> I, I don't need to struggle with it anymore. So therefore, in a way, I don't actually even call it fear. I don't think it deserves the label fear. Fear only is fear when it has the power to block. When it's just energy, forces, vibrations moving through the body, and there's no frozen energy with that, it's not fear. So I don't even really bother with this label anymore. I'm not that bothered by the whole idea of fear. Because I see what it is. I see that it's just energy, unpleasant energy, uncomfortable energy, but it has no power. I've seen in my own life that when something unfamiliar or a new situation arises, this energy of fear seems to arise, arise with it. And perhaps you've seen this for yourself. If there's, if there's something new that you're confronting, perhaps a pain, a pain in the body that, the, that seems quite threatening or fearful. Or talking in groups. Some people have talked about that. Talking in groups. There's an energy that arises with that. Or if you're facing someone with a difficult situation, there can be that, that energy, that anxiety that arises with it. And then we work with it, we work through it, we confront the situation, we speak in the group, we look at the pain, and we do this until we feel a certain strength within ourselves. Something else becomes strong within, within us, and then we have a kind of breakthrough, and that energy dissipates, it dies away. And then the next challenge comes, the next thing comes, and then the whole thing repeats itself. And then we have a breakthrough and it dies away. And then the next challenge comes. <laughs> the next challenge will always come. And with that, the emotions, the feelings, the moods. And there's no problem in that. We just keep moving. I don't think the point is not to be fearless. I don't think that we have to be fearless so that this fear is no longer in our bodies, in our minds. I don't think that's the point. I think it is to be courageous, to feel the courage to move forward, even in the face of fear. It seems that when we face something that has been difficult, 
We're facing some truth that hasn't been seen, and we wake up to it for the first time, something that has been masked over. What can arise with that seeing is a lot of grief, a lot of sadness for what we're seeing of what has happened in the past, some conditions that we've seen in the past. And it can feel very sad, even a sense of grief, of, of, of tears and sobbing for what was lost, for what happened. We can feel sad for how long I've been bottled up, how long I've been contracted and, and closed off. Feel grief for that. Or for how long I've lost my spirit, my sense of spirit. You can feel grief for that. Because this spirit can only be expressed through one's unique truth. That is our spirit. Our spirit is our essential truth, the essential expression of that truth. This is Wendell Berry, a wonderful poet. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. So accepting the reality of what's true really accepting this truth of ourselves. Yeah, I'll feel depressed and I'll feel dissatisfied some of the time. That's the way it is. Or yeah, I'm reactive at times. I get in a bad mood at times. I feel confused a lot of the time. That's the way it is. Sort of accepting this shadow side. We call this the darker side bringing acceptance to that, making friends with the difficult aspects. Kind of like sitting down and having a chat with ourselves and saying, hey, it's okay. It's okay. That's just the way it is. There's no real big deal here. I call this a kind of radical acceptance. A radical acceptance of the truth of who we are. And in this radical acceptance, there's a kind of relaxation. I say, ah, you take an out-breath. Ah, oh, yeah, that's okay. We relax. We drop the struggle, drop the fight, drop that need to have to present ourselves differently. And in this relaxation, we can know the essential self. We can touch the essential truth. 
that essential self that is untouched by any experience, any mind state, anything that's happening at all. I'd like to end with something from Rainer Maria Rilke. He writes letters, his letters to a young poet, Mr. Kappus. If only we arrange our life in accordance with the principles which tell us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us the most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. So you mustn't be frightened, dear Mr. Kappas, if a sadness arises in front of you larger than any you have ever seen, if an anxiety like light and cloud shadows moves over your hands and over everything you do. You must realize that something is happening to you, that life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hand and will not let you fall. Why do you want to shut out of your life any uneasiness, any misery, any depression, since after all, you don't know what work these conditions are doing inside of you? Perhaps all the dragons of our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us at once, beautiful and brave. Perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something helpless that wants our love. Let's just sit for a few moments together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.